everybody welcome into show notes it's a very special day we've got some stuff going on out there the first is just a reminder to sign up for the newsletter so if you are one of the lucky thousands of people who have signed up for anything with us in the past then you probably received our inaugural edition of the unftr newsletter which has some headlines up top it's got links to all the videos that we've done for the prior week it's got some additional little thoughts on things in the beginning of it, that will probably expand over time as I have more thoughts. And um, you've got links to our store, you've got links to everything. Anything and everything that you could possibly need in the UNFTR universe can be found on that. So if you are not yet signed up for the newsletter, go to unftr.com and make that happen. Uh, the other thing that we wanna just go over very quickly is that we have a short video on creative destruction this week. And we're in the process of seeding a bunch of other playlists. So right now we've got right-wing tropes, economics, neoliberalism, show notes, and topical vids. So we just added a section called Heroes and Villains, and our first villain was Ayn Rand. So we're revisiting some of the archive and the catalog that we have just to bring that forward. And we have a new one this week called What Is? This is where we're going to do vignettes on important events through history, policies, legislation, other important moments that kind of help explain U.S. politics and U.S. history to fill in some gaps. And this week we are starting with the Kerner Report. So the Kerner Commission Report from 1968, I believe it was. So look out for that one. And um, is there anything else going on? No. Oh, shit. What's that? <laughs> Hi. 99 is in the studio. 99 is off camera, but she's in the studio. So for those of you that are watching show notes on YouTube, right there in the back of our massive, massive studio facility, mm -hmm. I mean, all the way across the room is 99. Hi. For those of you who are listening, it's 99, of course. Yeah. The great, the all-powerful. You know she's always here. But we thought it would be fun to record these. We'll see if it continues to be fun to record these. We'll see. So that's that. So shall we get into headlines or do you want to go through anything else or fill everybody in on your uh, fantastic week away where you were so kind as to not bring your germs into the studio? Yeah, it was not fantastic. I was sick with a cold. It was not COVID, but it fucked me up real bad. Did you get it at a campground, at a concert, at a dirty, dirty campground? No, I don't know. I had, remember I was sick like three weeks ago when yeah. I had the panic attack. I think it laid dormant in my system and then woke up one day and said, fuck you. And you know what? I've never expelled so much snot from my nose in my Good whole Lord. life. Mm -hmm. I think unfuckers are going to start to worry about you and your immune system. I'm fine now. It's probably because she's a vegan. Mm, definitely not. I bet my blood works better than yours. Proteins. I bet. What? I bet my blood work is better than yours. My blood work was awesome. I just had a physical. You know that. Yeah. My blood work was perfect. So was mine. But I'm younger and I guarantee wow, my vegan diet. The stuff out right away. Well, Thanks. that's just life. Okay. All I right. feel like if we're going to do this, you have to look in the camera and not at me. Just do I have to look at you? I think so. I can look at you in the camera and you can look at the camera so the unfuckers don't feel left out. We have to work Do you out. Feel left out, everybody. We have to work out the kinks. I know. So, I think. But I like you. I like looking at you. I know, but I think that's just gonna, you know, if we're gonna make it conducive, or I have to sit like here, right behind the camera. Well, we'll figure it out. I got my ears lowered today. Can you tell? You got your ears lowered. Yeah, at the barbershop. shop. Oh. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
got all tightened up. It's looking a little scraggly. Mm. Yeah. It looks nice. Hey, thanks. Very kempt. Not uh, fuckboyish? Uh, I mean, that's still there, but <clears throat> if anything, it's more fuckboy than usual. Right. Somebody made a comment about my glasses, and I couldn't tell if it was a good one or a bad one. They're like, oh, my God, the readers. They're not readers. <laughs> They're not readers. They're prescription. They are. Do they make your eyes huge? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> we. Okay. So getting into headlines. Uh, the first one is, actually, we have two from the New York Times. The first one is, after doling out huge loans, China is now bailing out other countries. So I found this one super interesting because China, according to the article, is fast approaching IMF level funding and giving loans to struggling economies around the globe. And I just want to read out really quickly my favorite section from the article. Quote, American officials have accused China of engaging in debt trap diplomacy that is saddling countries with excessive debt for construction projects carried out by Chinese companies, often using Chinese engineers, Chinese workers and Chinese equipment. Chinese officials contend that they have built much needed infrastructure that the West talked about for decades, but never completed, end quote. So... I mean, the reason I wanted to re read this out is because unfuckers will be familiar with our episodes on the Washington consensus and essentially how we went about nation destruction for nation building through the auspices of corporate America for literally 150 years. We called it dollar diplomacy. They're calling it debt trap diplomacy, but it's dollar diplomacy by any other name. So we offered loans and salvation to Latin American companies in particular, Central American, all through the Caribbean. We began to export that philosophy to the Middle East. We exported it to uh, parts of Asia as well, and uh, essentially gave out loans with the condition that U.S. corporations could come in and help denationalize certain industries, take over a bunch of important industries with, let you know what, let's just play a little wordplay here and say with American engineers, American workers and American equipment, which is exactly what we did for so long. If you're not down yet with Jeffrey Sachs, I would encourage you to do this. We've talked about him, I think, a little bit before. We actually, I think we talked about him in our media landscape video where we talked about important people. And he was sort of like another figure who's not he's not a journalist. He's not a reporter of any kind, but he is one of the leading figures on anti-poverty initiatives. And I believe I believe he's with Columbia, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, he's been contending for several years now, and you can find a ton of clips. I have him talking about this on YouTube now, that we are basically just making out China to be the new scare, to be the new Russia, to be the new Islam, to be the new whatever, so that we can, you know, just kind of keep funding the war machine to build the defense budget and say that they're the next military threat and also talk about how they're the next economic threat. The reality of the situation today is that the Chinese economy is still just a little more than half of the U.S. economy. The U.S. still runs the world. We are the world's reserve currency and all these things. We are the world. We are the world. We are the currency. <laughs> we did an episode on this. Yes, we did. Yes. So um, the bottom line is that's not really in the cards right now. But is China taking over huge swaths of Africa from a nation building perspective, from a debt perspective. Absolutely. Are they beginning to do that in their hemisphere as well? Absolutely. It's just funny and ironic to me that we would accuse them of this debt trap diplomacy, which is essentially dollar diplomacy by another name. So anyway, check that out in the New York Times. Another one in the New York Times, sorry to be so Times heavy this week, but it was interesting because 
99. I don't know if you caught this. Our buddy, Harry Wallace, who has been on this show, who is the chief on the Puspatuck Reservation, reservation, so he is the chief of the Uncachog people, and also the uncle of Amy Wallace, the head roaster at Native Coffee Traders from where we get our coffee, was featured in the New York Times. He was talking about the Hochul, the Hochul administration in New York, who just vetoed a bill, Hochul did, saying uh, basically that there's no protection for tribal burial grounds. She sided with the developers, even though this law took, I think Steve Engelbright was the champion of this law and took for years and years and years of trying to push it through, finally got it through, finally got agreement on both sides, on both chambers in New York, and Hochul vetoed it because she got pressure, if you can believe it, from real estate donors Whoa. who said it was going to delay the permitting process and the building process and cost them way too much money to consider, you know, all of those native burial sites. So here's a quote from the article. Now that we clearly understand how she feels about the native people in the state, said Chief Harry Wallace, the leader of Long Island's Uncanchog Nation and a driving force behind unmarked graves protection effort, it turns out she's just as much in support of the property developers as the previous governor was. This led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And I think I'm going to save the gist of this for a topical cream that I might try to sandwich in this week or next week. I spoke to an attorney who represents Onondaga Nation. So Onondaga is one of the, I think it's actually the center point of the Haudenosaunee, which is the six tribes in New York State, mostly throughout New York State, but in the Northeast that make up the, what it was known as the Iroquois Confederacy, but it's the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And the, in their flag, Onondaga is right in the middle of it, kind of holding it together as sort of the spiritual territory that holds the, uh, the faith of the tribes that are related. So I spoke to the attorney earlier today because one of the things that Hochul, that, that her press flax claimed in the article was that, hey, nobody's been better to native tribes in New York than Governor Hochul, even though she robbed the $500 million from Seneca Nation to build a stadium in Buffalo using back channels that actually supported her husband's development company, even though she has now overturn this effort to try and protect graves, uh, unmarked graves of, of native people throughout the state. She claimed that, hey, look at what we did. We gave a thousand acres back to Onondaga. I was like, hmm, that's curious. I hadn't heard of that. Obviously, I checked with my buddy John Kane, went down searching a little bit, found an article uh, from a Syracuse paper that talked about the, the gift of this thousand acres. Well, what is this? What is this thousand acres? What is this gift? from Governor Kathy Hochul. Turns out it was a gift that had a whole bunch of people at the table negotiating on, on behalf of this land to, to be returned to the native territories. But missing from the negotiation, believe it or not, was the native territory, was Onondaga. So you had the DEC, you had the EPA, and the Hochul administration who negotiated with Honeywell, who owned that land, to give the land to Onondaga except nobody asked Onondaga about it. Do they want the land? Absolutely. What's the problem with the land? It's one of the most polluted acreage sites in the country. So for a hundred years, they dumped so much mercury that wound up at the bottom of Onondaga Lake because they, they polluted the creek that, and only completed 5% of the dredging of it. And I'm gonna give you some more specific numbers that are absolutely jaw-dropping when we do the topical cream. Uh, but essentially, they just said, 
not only can you have it back with only 5% of it being remediated under standards that happened in a sealed deal without Onondaga's uh, knowledge of it, but Onondaga, once they get it back, will no longer be allowed to sue Honeywell for any of the effects of it that come out. So there's the big gift that the Hochul administration is standing behind. You always have to read between the lines with these people. You And when it comes to native issues, this government, the federal government, the New York state government is so hostile to native issues. It is just remarkable. So the whole thing is bullshit. I'm going to give you chapter and verse on it a little bit later. And we got a lot of great details from the lawyer that represents them. So that's all I got to say about that. And the last one is about the power of people, the power of the Israelis protesting in the streets against the Netanyahu administration, who is essentially trying to um, force a vote that would have stripped the judiciary in Israel from so much of its power, basically rendering it toothless because it would it, it would have taken their power as the democratic triumvirate, again, set up pretty similar to the way we are. So you've got the Knesset, you've got the executive branch that uh, Netanyahu runs, and then you have the judiciary. What he tried to do was make an end run around the judicial system by saying that the Knesset could overturn any decision and on its own volition could just look at a decision that was made by the judicial powers and say, we don't like it, we're just overturning it and stripping it, which basically renders them completely obsolete in the process. If, you know, that just puts all the power back into the Knesset. And of course, he has all of these very fragile, but hardline right-wing alliances that he had to make in order to, uh, to take power back again, probably also to get rid of the investigations on him because he was found guilty of so many, uh, so many crimes during his last tenure. So now that he's back in office, I wonder if there's anything to him trying to get around the judicial process by putting the hands back into the alliance that actually made him the, uh, the the head of Israel again. I don't know, just conjecture. The power of the people is they have been taking to the streets in Israel non-fucking-stop. And even though Netanyahu put a pause on the initiative and said, I'm not going to do it anymore, hang tight, everybody, we cannot overturn this democracy. It's actually against our laws as a people and uh, our laws for that, that are based on our religion, we can't actually break up this democracy. And they said, not good enough. You just have to repeal it altogether and stay away from the judiciary. So they continue to stay on the streets. So we linked an article to uh, Al Jazeera. Again, when it comes to foreign affairs, they don't love to quote any of the American outlets. So that one talks pretty fairly and objectively about what's happening on the streets in the cities of Israel. It's impressive and it shows, you know, shows the power that the people still have to turn back terrible legislation. And there you have it. That is it for headlines. So with that, why don't we switch into emails and 99? Do you want to take us away? Sure. So with feedback specifically about the creative destruction episode, we heard from Bobby McDee, who said, listening to the recent episode on creative destruction put me in mind of Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. Fisher contends in this book that a necessary consequence of capitalism is a creative and cultural cul-de-sac. I know it's not a direct equivalence, but in the creative world of arts, innovation is no longer welcome. We've put constraints on creativity, be it the number of characters in a tweet or the formulaic storytelling of Netflix and Disney. If I want to sell a story, I must tailor it to a specific audience. To make money, artists must apply these constraints or face rejection. Innovation is frowned upon and does not make money. Just a thought, but is something similar happening with tech? 
a kind of paradox in which it ain't broke, so don't fix it, places us in a creative dead end. So this kind of got my mind spinning back to how art has always been funded. So Bobby McDee, what I would throw back to you is that artisans serving at the pleasure of courts through ancient times has always been one of the rubs of true creativity and why you see so many uh, artistic geniuses that we consider to be geniuses through history, not even getting their creative due until after they've died. And, and in some cases for, you know, hundreds of years and, you know, until these discoveries are made. So I wonder if it's ever been any different. I mean, the commodification of art is really troubling. And you could see that everywhere from architecture, through music, through, you know, algorithms, writing songs for artists. And I mean, it's, it's really puzzling and very troubling. There's no question that the money machine feeds this kind of homogenous mediocrity that we see in film and television and all that, but it's kind of always been that way. And I, my, my question back would be, I wonder if and when there were glory times. Obviously, my mind goes back to the core tenets of capitalism and Adam Smith even saying that, you know, the excess surplus money that's in the system should be used to fund the arts and the humanities because that's what makes for a successful culture and society. You know, when you when you approach that level, it shows that you're actually doing something right. The fact that we've corporatized all of that and, you know, we reduced the budget for NPR, we reduced the budget for, well, you know, public television, all those kind of things makes me wonder if we've passed some sort of point that wasn't there before. But I mean, you know, you know who like who would you consider the great artist of your time that, you know, of my time? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if we're talking about I don't. I don't personally agree with it, but I think maybe Banksy, just in terms of someone making a splash, if we're if we're talking about like who's regarded. Mm -hmm. And now there's so many imposters and knockoff Banksies, but I think their work, you know, probably because I don't I don't know. Is he it's revealed, right? I don't know. Is don't it know. like rumored who he is? I'm not sure. But I call Otherwise, bullshit on Banksy anyway because I just I, it defies logic that that he hasn't been caught by authorities. I I, yeah, I mean I'm not like a Banksy head. <laughs> it's not like my favorite. I don't know. I think we have so much. We don't. We just don't have artists like we used to. Like not there. There are there are as many talented people, if not more, but because we have just unmitigated access to it, mm -hmm. it's just not regarded in the same way. Yeah. So like. I don't know who was going to be looked back as like, wow, the, the classic painter from 2023 as we look back on, you know. I mean, Picasso wasn't that long ago. True. So It's, it's hard to define like, even the nature of art. I mean, I know Bobby's probably talking specifically about literature and the written word and how hard it is to get things that are just not formulaic published mm -hmm. these days. But um, I don't know. So the, I, I wonder if there's ever been... Formulas uh, work, though. They do. They work for a reason. You know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it's a uh, trendy to, to gripe about reboots and whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like people are going and yeah. formula the hero's journey, save the cat, all of it exists <laughs> for a reason. Well, unfuckers, if you think, and Bobby as well, I mean, if, if, there's a, if there's a time in history that you feel was particularly supportive and advantageous for creativity and art. I'd be curious to know what that is because I feel like we've, from the dawn of time, they've had to 
they, they, they've had to create at the whims of the corporate class, the, the royal class, whatever it is, you know. Um, so anyway, but good stuff, Bobby. And I'm glad that inspired that uh, tributary of thought. Now, W. Jeremy D. said, Max, I'm left a bit confused after the creative destruction episode. Maybe I just don't have the right scale to understand you, uh, your definition of innovation. I would give you a couple of examples just to soothe my confusion. Innovation continues, but the complexity of our society makes innovation at historic levels seem commonplace. And it takes multiple granular innovations to make enough societal waves for people to notice when they occur outside of a person's specialties. Example one, computer-aided design. With today's parametric design software, I can create complex mechanical designs, run complex static and dynamic simulations, and then create fabrication drawings that my shop can then execute. Uh, example two, medical innovation. Results versus innovation required. You can look at potential healthcare outcomes as an example. The age of fetal viability has come down from 28 weeks in the 80s to 22 weeks today. This isn't a single technological lurch forward, but several innovations, isolate quality, steroid application, ventilator technology stacked on top of each other. The same could be said of cancer care or our understanding of the microbiome and stress-related gene expression. Uh, okay, once again, if, if you've ever doubted that we have the smartest listeners, um, don't. Innovation and capitalism aren't symbiotically linked. Capitalism isn't required to drive innovation. Innovation, in my opinion, is linked to the core human curiosity. So on that level, uh, you know, we're certainly aligned. Where we're getting tripped up is in our definition of uh, innovation and the difference between innovation and wh what I was kind of terming uh, iteration and improvement. So I think in most of the cases that you're talking about here, now there were some some true innovations at the core of what you're talking about. Multiple applications across multiple fields coming together in a way that wasn't originally intended to create a system or a process that is revolutionary and time-saving and efficient and all of those kind of things, like what you're talking about with mechanical drawings and design. There are pieces of iterations that came together in sort of this confluence, which you can call the confluence of it, the person that saw them all together and, and wound up drawing them together, perhaps as a sort of innovation of the mind. But the true innovation was the, the mechanical drawings, the structural drawings, the engineering at the beginning of it. The innovation was certainly within the power of computing. And then these things coming together over time look like innovation, but they're really, and what I'm seeing as in iteration and improvements on process on original innovations. In the medical field, not my specialty, so it's not something I wanna comment on too much, but my guess is that at the at the root of everything you're talking about here, we're real seminal innovation. So you're talking about, uh, we have steroids for an example, uh, ventilator technology, all of these things, very, I don't wanna say very old, but those innovations came more than 50 years ago. And then bringing them together, is that innovation or is that uh, creative thinking and design thinking around original innovation? So what I was terming as innovation is something that is entirely new. So supercomputing, the internet, um, it could be uh, microbiology, which has certainly been a study that's happening over hundreds of years since the beginning of, of you know, learning about the microscope and learning about bacteria and, and the existence of viruses and being able to see these things differently. These are, those were certainly innovations. Is there anything left 
I mean, that's one of the questions I think that we've always struggled with through history, what's left? You know, we've already thought of everything. So everything from this point forward is just going to be building upon prior innovations. There are certainly things within even our, my lifetime, maybe not yours, 99, <laughs> that simply did not exist prior to, you know, a specific time period. But over the last, let's say, 40 to 50 years, the roots, the genesis of all of the ideas that then, whether you want to call it advancement or Moore's Law or what have you, came to fruition, like what they were talking about in, in the book, that GPTs, general purpose technologies, are never ready to wear. They always take time and you have to bolt onto them and you have to find them in different use cases. And then some other industry gets a hold of it and then taps into it. I mean, there's so many case studies of chemical discoveries that were usually that were originally used in maybe the Department of Defense or it was used in some sort of chemical manufacturing process that was then taken and applied to something else. Look at fluoride and fluoridation. I mean, that comes from uh, the extract of coal and not knowing what to do with it and then discovering that there were benefits or were there, uh, you know, to fluoridation. Uh. Well, so, right? I mean, it's like, it doesn't always have to be a positive outcome, no, right? No, there are benefits. Uh, to fluoride? Yes. Yeah. I mean, listen, there might be, but there's also downsides. You don't want too much fluoridation in water. Like there has to be certain, you know, levels of it that are appropriate for human consumption. Yeah, but right? I, th I think it's I think it's a net positive that people that... Yeah. Could be. Could be. Not a scientist. What I, so, but my point I is... I like, think you're going to get pushed back on that. <laughs> no, well, my... But my point is not to say whether it's good or bad. My point is that it was an unintended consequence. So they were looking that the fluoride was essentially the the extract that they didn't know what to do with from a coal manufacturing process and, and refining coal. And then they found that there were other uses and benefits for it. That happens all the time through chemical engineering and through biological consequences, uh, biological research that have unintended consequences. So is that an innovation? So I think it's a good question to, to you know, to it's a good debate to have. It's a good question. My interpretation of it for our purposes today was that the first thought, the first trigger, the first idea of, of when it came out, not the tributary, not the thing that was thought of afterwards or the confluence of events that made it some sort of application for something else, that's not the innovation. The innovation was at the core. So that's what I'm wondering is, as to whether or not any of these things have happened. More to the point of creative destruction that we extrapolated from creative destruction was that those core innovations you can draw a straight line back to government funding that they started out as public initiatives, which aligns with uh, W. Jeremy D's final point here, which is that innovation and capitalism are not uh, symbiotically linked. Uh, so as a matter of fact, you don't have to have innovate. You don't have to have capitalism to have innovation, you know, the human spirit and ingenuity. Does it light it on fire? Does it make it uh, come quickly? Does it make the iterations and the improvements come faster? I think that would be hard to argue that they don't. Like the capitalist structure helps to foster that type of investment as you know when there's a profit motive but the, that's not what necessarily drives the original innovation so that is that so why don't we move into general feedback 99 what do we have and also I, i'm gonna have to think of uh what i put on the screen since uh, i'm not allowed to show you how are you gonna put anything up it's just you it's just me for now but i can i can put something on top of it right I'm gonna have I'm gonna have some fun with that. You know that, right? I guess. We should figure out how to animate you. I, apparently, that's not that hard. Yeah, there's a software because I don't I don't think this is fun. <laughs> I don't I don't think this is fun for the watcher. It might not be. I don't because you're just talking, and then it's like, who's this disparate voice of God? 
you know, I'm like the it's producer. The voice of yeah, it's like, yeah. you know. If you watch Majority Report, they've got uh, people off camera that chime in all the time. There's, I don't watch it. There's moments Sorry. of awkward visual silence. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's it, you said awkward. Yeah, but it doesn't feel awkward because you know what it is. I guess, but that's like moments. This is the entirety. Is this weird? I told you it was going to be weird. I, I just... I should fuck with her and just put some random things over when she's talking. That's right? fine. I don't care. Cats. She loves animals. Maybe we'll just put animals, like video of animals going. Stuff like that, right? Yeah. Pictures of... People have been puppies. shitting on you left and right lately about your production value. My production sucks. <laughs> They're really mad at you. They are mad at me. What? Less, and less, we'll get into some Less close-ups. More get graphics, further away, be closer up. Lower music. Lower your music. Um yeah. your audio stinks. Yeah. There's yeah. A, the people are people it's are rough, bad. man. Yeah, fix your lighting. My lighting. I think I I think I fixed it, by the way. I I'm just saying I'm reading where I'm reciting what the people have said. Yeah. And so. I'm responding. I think I fixed the lighting. The lighting better? Yeah. I don't know. Well, anyway. all right. Jim Q. <laughs> it's been a while since uh he wrote to the show. He says, It's amazing as always, and funny and super informative. Who knew you could do both? <laughs> so with the banking industry currently under scrutiny, a brief aside, is this Deutsche, Deutsche Bank? Bank? Okay, mm -hmm. I'm just making sure. Because, you know, like, I know people with that last name, and it's just like Deutsch. Like Donny Deutsch? I don't know what that is. Is that how you spell it? Hey, Donny Deutsch. What happened to that guy? Who? Donny Deutsch. See? I don't fucking know who that wow. is. Who? Donny Deutsch. Who is that? Stop saying his name. They're not going to clear it up for it's me. Not gonna ha no. It's not going to help? Uh. No. Right. Who is it? He's like the original like Shark Tank investment smart entrepreneur dude who hosted a show on TV. What show? Uh, well, I don't know. maybe that would have would have helped might, me. Okay. Help. Well, George Bank is now looking uh, rocky. The quote debate for public banking is bubbling up into the conversation again. I subscribed to Ellen Brown's newsletter many years ago, but I confess rarely read it. That's until recently with the shit show that's happening in the world of banking and finance. I think exploring the topic of public banking, there was a time when there were many such institutions in the U.S. maybe unfucking worthy. Yeah. So, Jim Q., I wonder if you could more narrowly define public banking. We've been proponents all along of credit unions and community banks, and that's not public banking. I know they're all under the same guy. Well, again, different governing bodies, different liquidity ratios, different uh, governance, different guidelines for credit unions and community banks, but um, there are options within banking in particular. I think that r rather than getting into a discussion of, of large scale public banking, because I'm assuming you're talking about more nationalizing efforts uh, within the banking sector and having those nationalized efforts compete with the public sector. That's a conversation. I think a better conversation, a more immediate conversation for us needs to be revisiting the repeal of Glass-Steagall and uh, separating the firewall between commercial banking activities and investment banking activities. I think that's where it gets really dicey and really wonky. So revisiting that, the argument for the repeal of it back in the day, which was a corporately funded initiative, as you can imagine, is that we had to, we had to be able to compete internationally. But we have international banking conglomerates and concerns that don't necessarily need investment arms and vice versa. So the, the reinstituting a lot of the provisions from Glass-Steagall, I think, helps eliminate a lot of the modern financial crises that we've had without having to create a, a parallel public banking system, which is, I believe, what you're uh, inferring here. So if that's not it, please clear it up for me and uh, we'll get to it next time. 
So now Dan M said, I'm having a great discussion on Facebook about the Petroleum Broadcasting System Systems uh, PBS explainer age of easy money on Frontline, where they justified the Fed's delicate but also necessary interventions to save our economies from the horror of inflation with the requisite austerity and unemployment that is needed to rein in our irresponsible spending. My perspective is a wee bit to the left of others, it seems, which is why my comments keep getting held up for screening. Since this happened again on a particularly topical post I composed regarding Chomsky, the labor movement in the USA is the 30s peaky blinders and the red right hand cover theme. I figured why not send it directly to you. Chomsky's a linguist and one of our national treasures and intellectual giant student of history prolific offer. Here he comments on the labor history of the USA, its unusual violence, subsequent indoctrination campaign. The description of labor in the 30s has direct parallels to what we see happening today. And it's a better explanation or motive of Fed policy than inflation. Interesting, we'll have to look that up. Uh, on a related note, by far my favorite UNFTR opening theme is the red right hand cover from Peaky Blinders. There you go. All right, so I will dig into, I, I love all things Chomsky, so I will, I will dig into that. I'm not sure what the correlation is between the labor movement in the 1930s. Hmm. It has direct parallels. Yeah. I wonder what the direct parallels are between that and, and the Fed. All right, Dan, you sent me on a, on a journey and, and I'll have to figure it out. Now, Eli C., and thank you for the comment on the Peaky Blinders. As unfuckers know, I watched the first, I think, four seasons of it and even got through the distraction of Sam Neill's awful, awful accent in season one to, uh, to really adore that show and love it. Although it made me just want to smoke a pack of cigarettes and uh, drink whiskey all day. Anyway, Eli C. said, I got turned on to your show back in the summer of 2022, I think, from a friend. Now I've listened to a bit more of you and I'm farther along in the backlog. However, I'm still in the back catalog as of writing this, so you probably won't even get to the show notes for quite some time where we mention you. But Quickie 11 was talking about Pennsylvania and the Fetterman race. I figured it was a good time to write in. I adore your show and have fallen in love with it. Let's see, the Tyson principle is something, that's something we haven't revisited in a long time, that I cling into at the, each of, uh, at the end of each episode. Uh, well, Tyson wrote us off, so we wound up writing off the Tyson principle, but Tyson, um, our, our listener Tyson, got really, really mad at us and said we sold out for some reason and we sucked. So we just dropped the principle altogether. But it's a good principle. Uh, and I've uh, really found a lot of joy and clarity in my thinking from listening to these some, some of the episodic breakdowns. Well, thank you for that compliment, Eli C. I hope you continue to enjoy your journey. There's a lot after that quickie in particular, a lot. So. Not that many more quickies, though. No, because I'm not so quickie on stuff. I tend to overwrite. But haven't I been tighter so far this year with the full on fuckings? Yeah. Purposely, purposely tighter, right? Because mm. usually it starts off like, oh, I'm going to do a topical cream and then the topical cream goes too long. And I'm like, oh, look how much restraint I showed on this full on fucking. Mm -hmm. So that's how my mind works. Yeah. yeah. You like to pretend. <laughs> and then I tell you and then you d deny yourself and then mm -hmm. you come in yeah. and here we are. Yep. So, yeah, well, so much restraint. <laughs> what did Inigo C have to say? Um, Robert Reich has got an amazing team that operates under the org the truth. Inequality Media. Most of them are from UC Berkeley, and I think they might actually operate right off campus. My opinion, you should reach out for him to him for a possible interview. It would be so freaking awesome to hear that on the pod or YouTube. 
I would love to interview Robert Reich. I think it's a great suggestion. So maybe a phone, a friend, we pick a specific subject and just let him go nuts on it. I have a book of his from the late 1970s too that I can use to to prep with. Should be fun. I'm sure he'll love See how that. he's changed over time. Like, hey, look, you were old then. You're old now. <laughs> he leans into it. He's good with it. I, I'm not surprised that he has an amazing team from UC Berkeley, by the way, because this stuff is really off the well, charts. That's why he. That's why Nico wrote it. Yeah, because you were musing. Saying on, he must have a big team, right? Or yeah, exactly. So. Uh, John R said wanted to turn you on to another podcast I discovered recently, and whose back catalog I binged in the past few days. It's called "Is This Democracy." And it examines the state of American democracy, past and present, and the American experiment in terms of addressing the question, how much democracy and for whom? Uh, scratches my itch for deep intellectual history, giving me a similar vibe as the Know Your Enemy podcast. Okay, well, uh, I certainly know Know Your Enemy and think it's a great show. So uh, is this democracy? I will have to add that to my very busy little playlist there and check it out. So thank you for that. Why don't you read our first uh, critique here that I pulled on the YouTube comments? Sure. So Elizabeth C. said, get rid of the music. Yeesh. Trying to learn something, but the ideas get buried by the music. Y'all may think it's subtle, but it's completely distracting. At least to me. You don't murder the podcast with music. Don't do it here, please. Yeah. You know why? Because <laughs> Manny Faces does our podcast. That's right. So and a couple of notes. <laughs> Max, Max does the YouTube. Yep. It's all yeah. learning curve. It is. It is. Seems to be a little bit longer than people are willing to to, uh, to, to grant me here. Um, yeah, no, but the audio has been uh, such a challenge. It's like, I'll finally get some of the video components right. And then the audio just, I, I blow the audio. And, and now I think I actually have the right mix for the audio. We'll see if the videos in, in the upcoming weeks, uh, if there's a noticeable, noticeable difference to it. One of the things I was trying to overcome is the ambient noise in the room. We don't have a very soundproof room. And there is a deep hum from all of the connections that I have here that I have not been able to figure out. I figured out a lot of it, but there's one little hum left. So a lot of the music is actually there to make it not such a difficult experience, but I think I have it figured out. So I'm gonna experiment with a couple of things. You'll let me know if you dig it or not. Elizabeth, I hear you, I feel you. And of course, as 99 said, two things. The audio experience with the music behind it is because it is a subtle art to be able to produce a show where you don't notice the music, but the music enhances the experience. That is truly an art, and that is why Manny Faces is the best in this business. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The other part of it is, for the audio experience, we have a musicless feed. That was a 99 invention, her insistence when we started the show that for accessibility purposes, that we don't have music that distracts and murders the podcast, as Elizabeth said. So on the podcast itself, you can find a musicless version. I won't be able to do both for YouTube, but I do have a way of making it far more subtle and a lot less distracting. So bear with me. Yep, one doubt, always lower. When in doubt, always lower. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. But I think I can, I think I found out how to get the hum out without affecting the voice quality, which was the the big problem. And there might be even more hums that your old ears can't hear because they're too high pitched. You see what I deal with? No, you like, see what I deal can't with, right? See it. This is why people are so when they write in, they're like, Max, Max, you look so young. I never thought you would look this young since ninety nine basically has you one foot in the ground. She makes comments like that. Makes me wonder. If you are old, the answer is yes. I'm not old. 
Mulder. Wiser. Then what? And I noticed in my haircut today that I, I have a couple of grays that are starting on top. I noticed before. I was admiring them because yeah. I want them, as we talked about. Yes, yeah. And I was jealous. Get a little silver streak in there. Yeah. Match my beard. I like it. Northwind on the YouTubes. We don't even know who the heck you are. The North Wind is an elite undercover industry. The North Wind is an elite an elite undercover interspecies task force. Northwind on the YouTube said, oh, uh, taking issue with my uh, MMT episode. What of the Weimar Republic? Does that lesson not apply here? Why do they have to buy bread with wheelbarrows of Deutschmarks? What of the Vienna School of Economics that preaches that all deficits are bad and that inflation is the only result? Can I get a few historical, not hysterical examples to support the claims made here? While theories may look good on paper and read well in books, what RL examples do we have, real life, to support this radical change in monetary policy? Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Northwind, great, great question, great feedback. And I'll try to get to you directly on YouTube as well in case you're not checking out the show notes. So the Weimar Republic fell victim to massive austerity at the end. They didn't realize it at the time, but of course the, the coming of uh, the Great Depression. Weimar Republic was stuck sandwiched between a losing war and a philosophy that was visited upon them of austerity and then adopted internally where they had austerity measures as well. The economy simply could not grow. And that's when they had hyperinflation. That's where John Maynard Keynes made his bones, was examining the hyperinflation post-World War I that was a combination of an inefficient recovery from expended war efforts. The economy was decimated in Germany all throughout Europe. And then them having punitive measures put upon them from the victors of the war. France being uh, at, the, at the head of the pack. France was so pissed, historically pissed at Germany. And they used that opportunity to truly exact their revenge. And it wound up obviously um, destroying the economy and helping to lead to hyperinflation. So that's where Keynes made his bones to be and to introduce his theories of stability and support and where he helped him define the paradox of thrift. So I think that's a pretty good example. Why aren't we repeating those lessons today? Now, the idea of modern monetary theory, as you're suggesting it here, is a theory. I would suggest that it has gone from theory and into practice since the Reagan era, where we have exploded the deficits every year with the exception of a couple of years under Clinton. So we've talked ad nauseum about this on the podcast, but I think it's worth revisiting that the circumstances that were different were the Weimar Republic was on the gold standard, had creditors that were treating them punitively, had a destroyed economy and infrastructure coming out of World War I and were never given the opportunity. And out of that fascism arose and authoritarianism arose because you had somebody who came out and said, I have the solution for all of this. And it's to go take back what is rightfully ours. And they turned it into a genocidal ethnic campaign that was really just covered to basically go uh, and uh, take over all of the productive parts of Europe as payback for the austerity measures visited upon them. What's different today is that in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, and the sovereign currency nations that we spoke about is that they're not on the gold policy, on the gold standard. So they do have the ability to run fiat that is not tethered to any sort of baseline standard. 
we have been running extraordinary deficits for literally decades that have not increased or impacted inflation. The deficits had zero and have had zero correlation to inflation for 50 years. And we have statistical evidence to support that. So that's what I'm relying on. What's I think confused in the public is that we've been operating under a partial theory of modern monetary theory for 50 years, but we've been pouring it into the military industrial complex and instead of pouring it into the social infrastructure that would actually have a greater benefit on the population. So uh, that's all I got to say about that. Now, 99, what did Randy L have to say? So Randy L said. I love this, by the way. My Google Doc closed and I'm opening it now. Randy knew that? Yeah, it's weird. Oh. So psychic. It's incredible. I know. Randy said, like John Spaulding said of libertarians, objectivists are house cats. They are convinced of their fierce independence while utterly dependent on a system they don't appreciate or understand. Let's just leave that where it is because I love it. I just, I actually don't appreciate this this, this depiction of house cats. They're very smart. They are very smart. They know the hand that feeds them. Will they bite it? Sure. Sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes they just sleep in your garage. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. My dog saw the cat the other day. The little one finally saw the cat and was like, what's happening in there? And the cat was just having none of it. She let me pet her. Oh, yeah. No, she's the best with humans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if she was friendly. And then she came up and she's rubbed so on my friendly. legs. She's so friendly. Said, Hi. Everybody who passes our house asks when the kittens are coming. Is she preg? No. Oh. She's just the biggest cat. She eats at our house, and then when she gets out, I think she just goes around the neighborhood and terrorizes. Like she's like the bully of the neighborhood, and she eats everything in sight. Never had a cat before. In don't want fairness, a cat. just for this people who amazing. judge outdoor cats, like I do. Like I don't think cats should be outdoor cats if they're indoor cats. Yeah. This was an outdoor cat. Yes, like a stray and. Oh yeah, yeah. Who, I know. I'm just telling the listeners yeah. they don't judge you. Right. Right. Like, okay. If, if you get Thank a cat, you. like I personally think they should stay inside, especially where we live where there are cars everywhere. Like, mm. if you're living on a farm, yeah, the cat can roam, obviously. Yeah. But, like, you just can't have stray, like, a loose animal here. So I'm just giving that. This cat, I have so many crickets. This cat won't kill crickets. These spider but crickets? no mice. I don't know the difference. Like, do they look like spiders? They're big. They have long-ass legs, yeah. Yeah, that, those are either spider... Well, my family calls them mole crickets. Okay. And then my friends call them spider crickets. They also have another name, like jumping cr jumping crickets. They're fast. They jump a lot. Yeah. They're Unbelievable. so fucking scary. Yeah. You got to get those traps. They're real good. Oh. Glue traps. I figured the cat would take care of it. That she'd just like have a, have a little taco snack. One time <laughs> we had a lizard living in our basement. Snuck in there. We have lizards near us. Are you in Florida? What? They're called Italian wall lizards. Re here? Yes. In New York. Yes. I see them. They've gotten into my house at least three or four times. Because people are flying back from Boca with lizards in their shoes. That's how they got here. No, they're native. Stay out of here. They're native here. They've been native here for a while. But yeah, one got in our basement. And that year we didn't have any mole crickets. And I was like, let the fucking lizard live here. Yeah, no doubt. It's eating all of them. Like, this is, yeah. we're, this is symbiotic. And then one time I woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom bathroom i had to go bathroom you had to go pee -pees? yeah and i uh didn't have my glasses on and i like looked in my bathtub like i had an old bathtub it didn't work in my bathroom and uh i was like what is what is that 
I got my glasses and I tried. I thought it was like, you know, when you're like half asleep and your eyes are all like dotty. And there was a fucking lizard in my bathtub that crawled oh, up through the, the pipes. Wow. So I like put a bowl over it. I or think something. you're hallucinating. You got butt crickets in the toilet. You've got lizards no, in the. No, please don't. What? Don't minimize my trauma. Do you know <laughs> I have to look in the toilet every time I go to the bathroom in my own home? Yeah, I because you have imaginary butt crickets. It's not imaginary and it was a centipede. Centipedes, right. So, Sorry. Uh, I mean, honestly, I don't we know have, which we would have be a worse. Whole short fan fiction story based on that from Bobby McD. Yeah. About your, your butt centipede. It was in the rim of the toilet. You know what? Let that happen to you and you fucking see how you feel. Okay. You're going to shit in peace Dude, knowing my... that there could be something with a centi. You know how many legs that is? A hundred. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter still calls me from college when she comes in contact with the bug. It's like, what do I do? Like, I've done do that. What do I do? I had, a, I had a panic attack my sophomore year of college because there was a stink bug in my room. I'm terrified. I like. I'm terrified of stink bugs. They just don't do anything to you. No. What? They fucking hover fly. Like they don't fly. They like can like. I mean, they they fly, but they like they hover at you. There's the one They're case so that where they'll big. burrow into your ear. Don't You've say heard? that to no? me. <laughs> and then I was trying to leave my room so I could just escape till it died, and I I don't know. I'd, I'd live on the street, yeah. and every time I got up, it flew down at me. To try to attack me. So I don't blame her for calling you. Bobby D, I feel another story coming. It was awful. I had that was like when I when I like have to talk about panic attacks and therapy, like that's my biggest panic attack I've ever had. I felt like someone dumped a bucket of water on me. I was sweating and crying. It was terrorizing I me. I wish you could see how animated she was. First of all, she's like, don't look at me. Look at the camera. Because it's weird when you look at me and she's like staring me right in the eye and telling me this really well, animated. You're trying to minimize my trauma. You're not a very good ally. It's not trauma. It's not trauma. What would you call it then? You got the ickies. No, ickies is like, oh, there's a, a house fly in here. Ugh, that's icky. It's like, I don't want I don't want it here. All right, let's talk about real trauma. Let's talk about lizards and, and big bugs and spiders and, and get back down to Florida. Because April, I, April, I, you think? It's I. Said, I just edited it. another great one. But please don't give up on Florida. Yes, some super fucked up laws passing here. Not everyone is cool with it. I'm just starting to get the courage to find out who I need to talk to about getting my voice heard locally. Good. Fucking A, April. Listening to the show and other fuckers, not in the Facebook group yet. That's Facebook at all, where Bob Knudsen curates. I have a problem with doom scrolling and stay off most socials. Good for you. You're a healthier person for it is always inspirational. Thanks for lighting this fire and giving me hope for a less hateful world. Okay, I hope Florida doesn't snap off and run into Cuba you know because April's there. Here? But April, if you get out, let us know. And then I do hope. What? You know who's coming here? Meatball Ron. Uh-huh. To Sanctimonious. Coming to New York. To the cradle of aviation of all places. The cradle of aviation? Yeah. Oh, he's going out on Long Island. Yeah. Look at that. I didn't know I had to write off a whole museum. Oh, but my God. They have an IMAX theater there. <laughs> they used to take us on field trips. Meatball Ron, the coming fuck to New York. He's gonna, what? Fuck you, man. Fuck you is right. Get I out of our state. Well, we have to. Get, we have to demonstrate. Okay, are you driving? Right. I'll do it. Fuck yeah, man. I'm in. Okay. Listen I'm holding to, you to that. <laughs> to round out the show, I want to say thank you to Nathan Surst for buying three coffees. Nathan, stealth coffee buyer. No message. He went to buymeacoffee.com. He's like, boom. I can assume that one's for me, one's for 99, and one's for Manny. Nathan Surst, always showing the love and appreciation. Thank you for that. 
And Starla N bought 10 coffees. My goodness. I love your fucking podcast. I live in a red hellscape in the high desert of California. Ooh, interesting. I feel so rejuvenated by the weekly dose of sanity as I navigate my life in Magaville. Making my way again in Magaville. He's a book coming out. That's Ooh, why he's coming. Run? The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. Oh, God. Just kill me. Just kill me. Fine, I'll be in Costa Rica. Take it all. He's coming on Saturday. This Saturday? Yeah. I'm going to be away. Republicans on Long Island were sent text invites over the weekend. Oh, man. And many Democrats were also on the list purchased by the organizers. Dude, Long Island's super red. That's what people don't understand about New York. General admission is free. Upstate, super red. Long Island, super red. The sponsor is a nonprofit issue advocacy group called End to the Republic. End to the Republic. A-N-D. And to the Republic. Well, I'll look them up and I'll harass yeah. them. This is a, uh, I can't, it's, it's a paywalled because it's Newsday. And I'm oh. not going to subscribe. You know, to Newsday at one time was the, I think the sixth largest paper in the country. And I've watched so many old interviews where they talk about how the corruption within media, except for Newsday, <laughs> there was a time in the 60s and 70s, and I got, I can't remember the guy's name who ran their, Bob Green, actually ran an investigative reporting team. It was a collaboration of investigative journalists from around the country to track down the heroin trade because none of the other big papers would do it. These independent journalists went and got funded and did, it's called like the heroin trail or something like that. Anyway, it, at one time Newsday was was an absolute lion. Uh, people don't, you know, I don't, I don't think give it uh, the credit that it deserves for years and years. Is it New York local? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. It's crazy, right? One time the sixth largest in the country. So you're talking about like Washington Post, New York Times. They would cover like New York Post, Daily News, stuff, Newsday. No? Yeah, they had a foreign desk. They had a bureau. They had all that kind of stuff. But the okay. meat and potatoes of it was was New York. But anyway. Uh, so that's it, it. New York's Day. Well, I, I remember going to a Billy Joel concert when I was young, shocking, and uh, he changed, in New York State of Mind, he changed uh, lyrics from uh, Daily News to Newsday, and everybody went banana. It was at the old Nassau Coliseum. That remember that shithole? The New York Times, Newsday. <laughs> he did it just like <laughs> doesn't that. Doesn't really fit. Yeah, but everybody went bananas, as you I remember can imagine. The old Coliseum. You said something from here. They only just, <laughs> they only just closed it. The old Coliseum, the old barn. Well, that old shit box. I mean, it's always, there's never it's been. always been a shit box. But they like renovated it and then they renovated again and then they renovated it again and then they said, you know yeah. what? Never mind. Yeah, they did. Like, <laughs> let's Fuck just it. fucking put something yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. So, yeah, of course I remember. I saw The Who there. Did you really? <laughs> yes. With your dad? Of course. Yeah. I was uh, 12. My very first concert? We've talked about it, definitely. Um, you got this. Um, you got this. It, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> it was Dr. Hook. Yes, of course. Dr. Hook. I could start singing all of their, literally all of their hits right now. They have so many hits, it's insane. If you're not down with Dr. Hook, go, just go to their catalog. You will be stunned at the number of hits that they had. They were Amazing. A couple of their band members just died recently, which made me sad and old. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, me too. Yes, they will no longer be freaking at the Freakers Ball. <laughs> yes, good call. Deep Cut 99. You're the best. 
All right. Well, I don't know what this weird experiment, uh, again, will continue to look like on the YouTubes, but uh, I hope you dug it. And um, I think that's a wrap for this week in show notes. Are we good? I think so. All right. Well, unfuckers, what do you want them to know? I don't know. Check out unftr.com. Sign up for the new newsletter, Labor of Love, Bane of My Existence. Yeah, keep watching these uh, and my face will never show up, but keep watching. There you go. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. We are the North Wind, and no one, no one breaks the wind.